when you look at the pastoral epistles and the reason they were written to provide us guidance for the life of the church, when you look at the, the authority of the apostles and what they designated, we're responsible as churches to have a plurality of godly men leading the church. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part four of a series titled Church Government, Monarchy, Anarchy, or Democracy. When you look at the pastoral epistles and the reasons they were written, you'll find that while they were written primarily for instruction and guidance in the life of the church, they also included clear guidelines as to how each congregation was to be governed. Ultimately, Christ chooses the elders of the church. Christ gives both the other church elders and its members the responsibility to affirm that a man meets the biblical qualifications. But since most Christians are not elders in a church, that may lead you to ask, as a member of a church, what is your duty to the elders? What does the Bible say? Let's join our teacher to find out on The Word Unleashed. You can get away with a lot of things as a shepherd, but you're not going to be a shepherd very long if you don't feed the sheep. That highlights the, this word highlights the key responsibility that we have in leading the church teaching or feeding the sheep. Now the verb form of this word is used three times in the context of church leaders. It's used in John 21 where Christ demands that Peter shepherd his sheep. It's used in Acts 20 verse 28 where Paul reminds the Ephesian elders that they are to shepherd the church. And it's used in 1 Peter chapter 5 where Peter charged the elders that were scattered to shepherd the flock of God. Essentially, this word is a word picture. It pulls from that culture and helps the leadership of the church to see what their heart and function is to be. They are to be to the people, to their flock, what an actual shepherd is to literal sheep. They are to be everything that that shepherd is. They are to feed them. They are to care for them. They are to protect them. They are to help heal them when they're in trouble, rescue them from danger. All of the things that a shepherd does to sheep, a leader of the church, an elder, an overseer, and a shepherd is to do. Now, when you look at these three words, it's important to understand that they identify the exact same person or same office. Elder, overseer, shepherd all refer to the same office and the same person. How do we know that? Well, let me give you very briefly, again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but you need to know this. Here's how we know these all refer to the same person. First of all, the qualifications for an overseer, the word used in 1 Timothy 3, and the qualifications for an elder, the word used in Titus 1, are almost identical it's clear that that function is the same even though it's described by these different words, overseer and elder. Secondly, Paul tells Titus to appoint elders in Titus 1.5, then calls the same office 
overseer in verse 7, two verses later. A third argument, 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2 brings all three of the concepts together into one office. Notice what Peter says, I exhort the elders among you, there's our first word, as your fellow elder, shepherd the flock, there's our second word, among you, exercising oversight, there's our third word. So Peter brings all three of those concepts together in this one office. Acts 20 also uses all three of these terms interchangeably. In verse 17 of Acts 20, we read from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. In verse 28, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So these terms all come together of the same office. How do the terms work? Well, essentially, elder refers to the character of the man. He is spiritually mature. And shepherd and overseer both refer to function. He exercises the role of a shepherd in that he feeds, protects, and heals his people. And an overseer, he rules or has charge both over the people and everything that happens in the church. That's what elders are to do. John MacArthur puts it this way in his little book on pastoral ministry. He says the term elder emphasizes who the man is. Bishop speaks of what he does, or overseer speaks of what he does. And pastor or shepherd deals with how he ministers, reflects his attitude or his heart. Now, before I leave this, I want to draw it all together for you. Essentially, what the Scriptures teach is that every church has its government residing within that church without a hierarchy outside of that church. And that government is to be a plurality of godly men who can be called elder, overseer, or shepherd. Those are all three identical titles. The elders of this church all have equal intrinsic authority. Not one of us is above another in terms of intrinsic authority. However, we all have differing levels of experience, different levels of spiritual maturity, different ages, different expertise, and all of those things we're to practice mutual deference to one another in. But in terms of intrinsic authority, my authority is not greater than any of the other elders who serve in this church. Now, a question some people have is, why are some elders paid and other elders not? Well, you know, I think there's really only one indication of that in Scripture, and we're going to look at it a little later. It's in 1 Timothy 5, so I'll get to that question. It also raises a couple of other issues. There are certain practices in the church at large that have been in place here in this church which could cause some potential confusion. Let me address them. First of all, we call some men pastors who are not officially set apart to serve as elders. You say, I thought an elder was an overseer, was a pastor. So why are all of our pastors not elders? For example, Adam Bailey is our family pastor. But he's not an elder. Why is that? 
Well, as long as you understand that he and Jonathan both are elders in training, we believe that they are gifted men, they are gifted to serve as elders, and someday will, and so we ask them to do the work of an elder in one specific area of ministry rather than serve in the official role of elder over the entire church as each of the elders who serve officially as elders in this church have been given the responsibility to do. We also ordain men to the ministry. Why do these anomalies exist? And they are anomalies to the biblical pattern. Why do they exist? Well, I think they exist to some degree from an overall lack of a biblical doctrine of the church in the church at large. So these things have sprung up through the history of the church. They're part of the church's culture. I also think that the current seminary system, and I'm, I'm a fan of seminary. I think if you're going to be in ministry and you're going to be a senior pastor, your goal is to teach the Word of God. You need the tools that you will get there. And yet at the same time, the current system encourages both of these practices, which are in some ways uh, distinct from the clear teaching of the New Testament. But in the end, the elders of each church have been given the latitude, I believe, to make these kinds of decisions and to identify these roles and to give specific responsibility to these men. But I just want to acknowledge to you that those are practices that are common in this church and outside of this church that are hard to synchronize with what we've studied together. So the New Testament pattern is certain and clear. A group of qualified men leading the church. But is that the pattern, listen carefully, is that pattern required for every church today? Is it a mandate? There are people who will say, absolutely, what you just taught is true. That's what the pattern was in the New Testament. But that doesn't mean we are bound to that pattern. We have the freedom to choose whatever mode and model, whatever structure that we want. Well, let me briefly give you the arguments for a mandate. I believe it is a mandate that every church has the responsibility to function in this way. Let me, before I share these, say, if you're visiting from a different church, it is not your mission in life to go convert that church to an elder-led church. There are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of patience, a lot of teaching, a lot of wisdom, and that's the role of the leadership in the end and not your role. Nevertheless, it's important to understand that I think there is a biblical mandate. First of all, look at the purpose of the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles, when we use the term, we're talking about First and Second Timothy and Titus, those books written to pastors to give them instruction and to deal with issues in the church. They were written to church leaders with instruction about life in the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul spells out his purpose. In fact, turn there with me. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Verse 14, he says, I hope to come, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Paul is saying, listen, I'm writing so that you know how life in the church should function. And within the context of the pastoral epistles, the evidence is absolutely clear. 
Paul is insisting on a plurality of leadership. You see it in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. You see it in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. So here are books given to tell the church how to function, and in those books, Paul insists that a plurality of godly men be put in charge of the church. I don't see how you get around that, honestly. There's a second argument, however, and that's apostolic authority. The twelve apostles, in their example, established elder rule in the Jewish churches. In Acts chapter 15, verse 6, we see that there were a plurality of elders in the churches the, elder, the apostles established. Also, if you look at Paul's example, he established elder rule in the Gentile churches that he founded. In Acts 14.23, he tells us that he went back over those cities and he established elders in every place, in every church. Then you have the Apostle Paul's command to Titus in Titus 1.5, appoint elders in every church. So when you look at the pastoral epistles and the reason they were written to provide us guidance for the life of the church, when you look at the, the authority of the apostles and what they designated, we're responsible as churches to have a plurality of godly men leading the church. Now, let me just give you some common misunderstandings about what's called elder rule. You'll hear that expression. It's an expression to describe a plurality of godly men leading the local church. Let me give you some misunderstandings about that. Unfortunately, some people see it as an oligarchy. You know what that word means? Rule by the few? That's what it literally means. It usually implies, the word does, a heavy-handed, autocratic kind of leadership. That's not what the Bible teaches when it teaches elder rule. We are to lead instead as servants, Jesus says in Matthew 20, verses 25 to 28. We're to lead as examples, Peter says in 1 Peter 5. Don't lord it over the flock. Lead them instead by example. So we're not talking about some heavy-handed rule by a few men in a smoke-filled room somewhere. There's a sense in which we can legitimately say, listen carefully, there is a sense in which we can legitimately say that elder rule is an oligarchy in the sense that you have rule and you have a few. But that's where the similarities stop. It's perhaps better to describe elder rule as a republic, as representative government. You see, ultimately Christ chooses the elders of the church, according to Ephesians 4, verse 10 and following, but he doesn't do that either by communicating his choice solely to the man himself. In other words, just telling the guy, I want you to be an elder. And then I say, God told me he wants me to be an elder. He doesn't do it by communicating to the elders. We don't get any letters from God apart from the ones you have and the Word of God. And he doesn't do it by some miraculous or providential intervention. Instead, Christ gives both the other elders, and the people of the church the responsibility to affirm that a man meets the biblical qualifications. If they affirm that reality, then the man becomes their representative. The people's authority ends at that point unless they become aware that a man has biblically disqualified himself to serve as their representative, in which case they are compelled to follow a process 
through the elders to see that man removed from being an elder. A second misunderstanding about elder rule is the corporate model. This is how some people interpret elder rule. In this model, the pastor is the CEO, the elders are the board. The problems with this approach are several. First of all, the character of the men. Often in this model, they ignore the biblical qualifications and they only see the qualification needing to be for the pastor, the one guy who's teaching, and all the rest of them can just be really successful businessmen who happen to have a lot of money. There's another view of the corporate model, and that is their view of the pastor. They see the pastor as an employee working under the direction of the elder board, as opposed to the pastor being one of the elders, having equal authority with the other elders. And there's a problem with the focus. Usually when you have a corporate model of leadership in the church, the, the focus is solely or primarily on the business side of the church. They spend all of their time on the business and very little time on the shepherding, teaching, equipping issues. We have a practice in our elders' meeting, for which I'm grateful, of making sure that we balance those responsibilities that we have. And we don't spend all of our time, as it were, as a corporate board making business decisions, but rather focusing on shepherding issues and equipping and teaching issues because we have all of those duties and responsibilities. Don't misunderstand. The elders are responsible for everything that happens in the life of the church, but not to do it, to oversee it. And the focus of the elders' life and time should be the spiritual welfare of the people. Just briefly, a third common misunderstanding about elder rule is egalitarianism. You recognize that word? It essentially means everyone's equal. It's a terrible blight on those churches today that embrace elder rule. On some of them, I've had to deal with the fallout of this mindset as I've talked to churches that have blown apart. Many churches who understand the principle of elder rule have misunderstood it and made it pure egalitarianism. Everyone is exactly equal. Listen, that's the Declaration of Independence, not the Bible. We're not exactly equal. There will always be our superiors in age, in gifts, in experience, in position, and we owe them proper respect. Romans 13.7 says, Render to all what is due them, honor to whom honor. As I mentioned before, there ought to be, even among the elders, a mutual deference. So it's not pure egalitarianism. One man, one vote. Instead, there is a recognition of honor to some who by age or experience deserve that honor. Now, I want to end our discussion tonight with asking this basic question and answering it. So what's your duty to the elders? Our church has nine elders, so most of you sitting there tonight are not elders. How do you respond? What does God command of you in responding? Scripture assigns you four basic obligations to the elders of this church. Now, I have to admit to you, I'm a bit reluctant to share these with you simply because it could seem self-serving. But I think it's important for you to think about and practice these clear commands. These are as much a part of Scripture as everything else we study together. This is your responsibility. First of all, you're to appreciate 
and esteem them. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, Paul writes this, We request of you, brethren, writing now to the church at large, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord. That's how we know we're talking about elders here. They have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. By the way, notice here the work of elders. They're to labor to the point of exhaustion. They're to have charge over you and they're to teach you. It's not a bad definition of the role of an elder. But you are to esteem and appreciate those whom God has placed as elders in the church. Secondly, you're to support some of them financially. You're to support some of them financially. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, the elders who rule well, this is the verse I mentioned earlier, are to be considered worthy of double honor. What's double honor? Pay. The reference here is to money. How do I know that? Look at the next verse. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. One of those in Old Testament text, the other from the Gospel of Luke. We're talking here about pay. Some of the elders are to be paid. Why? Or how do you determine which elders are to be paid? Well, look at verse 17. Especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. There's... All the elders are to be teachers. All of our elders are teachers. And they all are involved in teaching. But there is some distinction made here between those who especially labor at preaching and teaching versus those that, that don't. There's also a distinguishing here about some elders who rule or manage well. Not that some elders manage poorly. That's not the point. The point has more to do with the extent in which they're involved in managing and leading. And so both could be uh, supported by the church if they give themselves in, a, in a, a specific way to managing and overseeing the church and shepherding the church, and especially if they labor at teaching and preaching. They're to be supported. And by the way, you do that here and you do it well. A second, or excuse me, a third responsibility that you have to your elders is to imitate their faith. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. By the way, here's another verse that outlines some of the responsibility of elders. We are to lead, we are to teach. And we're to set an example for people to follow. And you are responsible to imitate our faith. That's a frightening thing for me to even say, honestly. But that's clear, clearly what the Scripture says. Finally, your duty to your elders is to obey and submit to them. Hebrews 13, verse 17, just a few verses later in that same chapter. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would even be unprofitable for you. Now, let me say that 
my authority as an elder, the authority of the other elders in this church, stops where the Word of God stops. I have no authority to command you which house to buy or which car to buy or which color socks you should wear next time you come to church. But if I can take the Word of God and I can show you from the Scripture what God commands, then you have a responsibility to obey and submit to that Word. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. So that we can lead you with joy and not with grief. These are your responsibilities. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part four of his series, Church Government, Monarchy, Anarchy, or Democracy. We hope you'll join us next time for part five. Are you interested in attending the Master's Seminary? Countryside Bible Church is home to the Master's Seminary Dallas campus. Join Pastor Tom Pennington as he hosts the Master's Seminary Spring Preview Weekend, March 24th through the 27th at Countryside. You'll interact with Tom, attend seminary classes, and participate in the church life at Countryside. For more information and registration, go to thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You'll find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.